Hey, good morning, Elevate. How are you this morning? Thought I'd start with a little confession. It's got your attention, hasn't it? Hey? I, those of you that know me well, will not be surprised at this confession. My confession is, I really, really, really can't stand it when things don't go according to plan. I'm a planner. I like to plan. I'm more planning than I am spontaneous. Louis is the spontaneous one. I live in constant terror, not just because of her MMA, but also because of anything can happen at any moment in our house, thanks to Louis. But me, not so much. I love it when a plan comes together, and I hate it when a plan goes south. How many of you are like me? You don't like plans going bust? Oh, yeah, and the rest of us were just all so spontaneous. What a load of rubbish. Flipping liars. I lo- oh. now, 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 plans can go awry for a variety of reasons, okay? Plans can go awry because we don't actually do the planning well. If you're someone, your plans go south because you didn't put time into the planning, you will get no sympathy from me whatsoever. I'll just say sucked in. You got what you deserved. Right? Plan better next time. That's my advice to you. Plans can go south sometimes because of just some stupid decisions. You know, we, we, we made good plans, but in the execution of the plans, we made some unwise choices. We didn't, you know, we were a bit short on the follow through, whatever it happens to be. And again, most of the time, you'll get no sympathy from me for that as well. I just say, learn from it. And next time, don't just do the planning, but execute the plan and you'll get a better outcome. But, but probably the category of plans, when they go south, the category of, of causes that rips my undies the most is when plans go south through absolutely, through circumstances that I have absolutely no control over. You know, the t-shirt stuff happens. I think that's what it says. Um, you know the one? I hate that just like, despite the best planning, Despite the best attempt at execution, there's a conflagration of circumstances that you have no control over, and as a consequence of that, your plans go bust. How many of you, like me, find that a little bit bothersome? I want to share this morning about a story from a wedding. Before we get into that, you know, just sorry, just thinking about it, um, the... (laughs) Thankfully, this wasn't my experience, but um, a story that, that personifies this idea of circumstances, you know, kind of conspiring against you despite your best planning. Uh, my, my sport is triathlon, and um, I swim with a swim squad at uh, the, the, the pool at uh, Vic Park, the Aqualife Center there. And uh, one of the girls in our swim squad, last year, she qualified for the, the Hawaii Ironman, the, the, the Ironman World Championships. Now, the Ironman World Championships, some of you may have seen it on television over the years, is held every October uh, in, 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 on the lava fields of the island of Kona in Hawaii. And it's a big, big, big deal. It's the pinnacle of the sport. Um, she'd qualified, her name's Helen, she'd qualified in December prior at the uh, Ironman Western Australia race in Bustleton. You have to finish in sort of the top one or two in your age group to qualify to go to the World Championships. So she'd done that in the 18 to 24s category. 
So she'd punched her ticket, got her, her spot to the world championships. And, and then having trained for the Ironman Western Australia, she's now got 10 months to get ready for the Hawaii Ironman from December through to October. She's going to prepare to race in the uh, lava fields of Kona at the uh, tail end of summer, having come off a, a, a Perth winter. Now, you know, Perth winter is not like Alaska, but it's colder than the, whole, uh, the lava fields of Kona. So you, you have to, to work at this. Now, the Hawaii Ironman and all Ironmans, if you don't know, it's a 3.8-kilometer swim in the ocean, uh, followed by a 180-kilometer bike ride across the hot uh, bitumen that uh, lines the lava fields in Kona, windy, uh, crazy, crazy. I've, I know pe- people personally have actually been blown off their bikes uh, by the crosswinds there during the race. Um, and then once you've finished, if you finish the 180-kilometer bike ride, you then get off and you have to run a marathon, a 42.2-kilometer marathon, again, through the hot lava fields. And often the athletes run on the white uh, stripe because the tar actually starts to melt the soles of their, of their running shoes if they run on the black bitumen. That's the sort of thing that she was preparing for. But you, you prepare for it. You know, people say, oh, I don't think I could ever do it. Well, maybe you could, maybe you couldn't. But if you're going to, I recommend you do a little bit of planning and you do a little bit of training, okay? That's just Coach Mark suggests, all right? So Helen was wise enough to do quite a lot of training, quite a lot of planning. And I mean, like, you, you know, she ticked all the boxes, okay? She did all the right swimming. You know, we're down there at 5.30 a.m., rain, hail, or shine, uh, three, four mornings a week. Follow, you know, you, she does the bike riding, the six, seven-hour bike ride sessions, um, the running, you know, you're going out for tw- 25, 30, 35-kilometer runs. In addition, you've got to prepare for the heat and the, and the conditions over there that are very different for Perth. So she was doing Bikram yoga just down here in, uh, in uh, Vic Park. It's a 90-minute yoga class in a, in a climate-controlled room. It's 40 degrees Celsius doing your Bikram yoga. And she's doing all of that to prepare to go to the Hawaii Ironman, a race of a lifetime, world championships. And uh, so off she goes. And, and we were tracking her back here, the squad. We're, we're tracking her with keen interest. She's a very good athlete. We thought she'd do quite well over there. And uh, she, she got over there sort of 10 days earlier just to start to acclimate to the, to the unique conditions of, of, uh, of Kona. And um, on arrival uh, into Hawaii, she got, you know, you put your, your bike in a, in a custom uh, bike box and it's taken across with you on the, on the flight. And she opens up. Uh, on arrival, she gets to a hotel room and she opens up her bike box and, uh, and there is her bike in two pieces. Had been absolutely T-barred by something and snapped straight down the middle. Now, that would be a little bit inconvenient if that happened here with all of your local support mechanisms and your local bike shop and your local mechanic. And She's in Hawaii. This uh, 19-year-old girl... Uh, about 10 days out from racing in the world championships and she's got two half of a bike. That wasn't going to get the job done. So her parents uh, wired her some money. She found a bike shop. She bought a brand new bike. She couldn't find the brand that she was used to riding. So she had to buy a different brand and no, no two brands are the same. And you know, 180 kilometers is a long way to ride a bike that you haven't done the training on. Okay. But that's just how it was. But good on her. She kept on pushing through. And so she got into the race. She finished the swim, started the bike rides, 180 kilometer bike ride. Uh, she got a flat tire 
at about the 40-kilometer mark. And, you know, okay, it's not ideal, but it does happen. So she, she fixed the flat tire. She had a spare uh, tube, so she put that in. She rode uh, further. Uh, she got about 120 kilometers into the bike ride. She had a second flat tire. Thankfully, she had enough, uh, another a spare a kit to fix the second flat tire. So she then kept on riding. She got three kilometers from the end of the bike ride and she had her third flat tire. She didn't carry enough, and no one does carry really, for repairing a third flat tire. So here she is, three kilometers from transition, you know, where you'd then finish the bike ride and then start off on the run. Bikes, you know, she can't ride it anymore. She's got no way of fixing flat tire number three. So she does what she thought was the appropriate thing. She kept pushing on. So barefoot, running on these bitumen roads with her bike next to her, she ran three kilometers towards the transition so that she could then check her bike in, put her running shoes in, and then run 42 more kilometers, although with shoes. She got 300 meters from the transition area where she checked her bike in, and uh, she stepped on a bee. And she has a, we discovered, incredibly high allergic uh, response to bees. And actually, if you ask her now, that's the last thing she remembers. And she was told from her hospital bed that uh, she collapsed on the spot and was taken by ambulance to, um, to the local hospital to be given the various uh, antihistamines and so on. Now... I think Helen has every reason to be a little bit frustrated by how that particular experience went. Stuff sometimes happens that's against our control despite our best planning. Here's a story, a story about a wedding. Let me pick it up here. Three days later was a wedding in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there and Jesus and his disciples were guests also. It's not uncommon in those days. You wouldn't just invite immediate family and friends. You would typically invite you know, the entire village to a wedding. It was a big, big, big deal. And when they started running low on wine at the wedding banquet, Jesus' mother told him they're just about out of wine. Now, this, John, who wrote this story, he doesn't say why they were out of wine. Okay? Just, we just find out that they were running out of wine. And that would have been a huge, huge, huge faux pas back in those days. The the Italians have an expression, bella figura. It it, it translates, you know, to present well. Everything's got to present well. When when you put on a wedding, when you invite your whole village, people you've grown up with and lived alongside and still live alongside, you're expected, there's a cultural expectation in those days to to, to really turn on a great show. And the weddings weren't just a sit-down three-course meal. You know, would you like the fish or the chicken? Would you like, you know, these went for days. And, And so, and you knew they went for days if you were the ones organizing the wedding, the family. And so you would put a lot, I mean, if you think people put a lot of time and effort into planning weddings today, and by the way, we've got checklists that you can buy and, you know, online or you get magazines and all that. These, these days, it was just old school. You had to remember. They would have put in months and months and months of planning into this. And, and so, for, you know, for them to be running low on wine would have been the ultimate, ultimate, ultimate kind of slap in the face to the guests. 
this, this, uh, this, uh, all the expectations crushed. And we know that they would have put the planning into this wedding. They would have estimated how much wine they would have needed. But for some reason that we don't know why, but for some reason they were running low on wine. And so Mary, Jesus' mother, she turned to him. Now he's 30 years old at the time. She says to him, they're running low on wine. He knew what she was getting at. He got the hint. And he said, is that any of our business, mother, yours or mine? This isn't my time. Don't push me. Like any good mother, she didn't listen to him. John writes that she went ahead anyway, telling the servants, whatever he tells you, do it. They're running low on wine. It wasn't just Mary that noticed. Everyone would have started to notice, particularly the people running the wedding and particularly the servants. They realized we're about to run out of wine. This is not good. And thinking about this story, they would have, I think, had three, three options at that stage. One option is resignation. Well, you know, when it's out, it's out. That's it. Just move on to the water. It's probably going to be better for them anyway. Just, you know, do nothing. Another option would have been maybe to have taken matters entirely into their own hands. You know, the servants just, they're in the village uh, context. Look, go out, knock on every door, well, get some more wine, bring it in, bring it in. Well, that would have been quite futile because likely everyone in the village was actually at the banquet, at the ceremony. So there was no body home when you knocked on the doors to look for more wine. But, you know, when you, when you, when, when you lose something, you know, the longer time goes on, you know, you, the places you start looking for stuff become more and more stupid. You know, like you lost your keys, you can't find your keys. Your starting point is always to look at the place that you normally leave them. You know, you normally leave them hanging on the hook or, or on the, the, the breakfast bar or, or by the little buffet next to the kitchen. You guys know that. You start there. But if they're not there, then, then you think, hmm, gosh, I wonder where else they might be. So you go to a, a slightly more unusual space, but, you know, you still think it's within the, the wheelhouse of where they might be. But you know, as you keep going and you keep going, you keep looking, you, you look for the, your keys behind the toilet. You, look for, you just start looking for them in stupid places. These guys could have got desperate, taken matters into their own hands, even though they might have known it was futile. But there's a third option. And this is the option that Mary took. And Mary decided the best option was to ask Jesus. I mean, she didn't explicitly come out and say, but they had a mother-son kind of bond and she would have given him the the wink, wink, nudge, nudge and he knew what that meant. Jesus, they're out of wine. Right, great. What do you want me to do about it? He knew what she wanted him to do about it. But here's the thing. She said to the servants, do whatever he asks you. She was the only person on the entire planet at that point, let alone at the wedding, but on the entire planet at that point in time who actually knew who Jesus was and what he was capable of doing. He'd never performed any, this was actually what's about to happen. I want to give the game away here, but what was about to happen, he was about to perform his first miracle. He'd never even performed a miracle at this stage. All he was to the servants and the village people was 30-year-old Jesus who didn't have a job and still lived with his mum. This is not the sort of guy you take instruction from. Listen to you. 
You're a freaking unemployed living with your mum and you're 30 years old, mate. He wasn't miracle wonder working, raising people from the dead. You know, he's just some, some guy at the wedding, just a guest at the wedding because he lived in the area, unemployed, living with his mum. And Mary, who knows what he's capable of, says, hey, mate, hey, servants, whatever he says, do it. See, see, Mary, the thing that Mary had, the advantage that Mary had is she knew what her son, Jesus, was capable of. And that's why over these last four weeks, and we're going to carry on in a couple of weeks' time, we've been talking about and drilling into the miracles that Jesus performed when he was on this earth. Because we need to make sure we get a clearer and clearer and clearer understanding of what Jesus is capable of. Because if we underestimate him, we're not going to go to him as our default position. Last Sunday afternoon, Baden and I headed out to the Swan Valley to buy some olive trees and we were to plant in just the little uh, garden bed here, landscaping, building the future, phase two. And uh, it's phase two of, I think it's going to be probably 20 phases. We're barely even started, but we're chipping away as we continue to give. We're able to get uh, things done. So we went out and we bought four olive trees and, uh, and brought them back. And Jill and, uh, and two of their kids came down to help us put them in. And uh, we'd, we'd put three in, and we were ready to put the fourth one in. There's this big flipping rock there. Now, like Baden and I, we like a bit of precision. So does Jill. So, you know, we, we had the measuring tape. We didn't none of this kind of, uh, that'll do, rubbish. No, measuring tape. All of the olive trees are 700 millimeters from the curb and 180 millimeters, 100, 180 millime- 1,800 millimeters apart. All right? Absolutely. Millimeters. Not 79. No. Hey, mate, trust me, any of you have ever built a house you want it to be built by Baden anyway? Uh, oh, I don't know. That looks straight enough. No, mate. No, mate. Anyway. So, so we, you know, we, we, we're going to put the fourth one in and it's going to be a beautiful plumb line with the other three, with big, dirty, big rock right smack where we wanted to put, no, where we had to put the fourth olive tree. And uh, so there's Baden, he has a go, gets the, 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 couldn't do it. I'm looking, thinking that, that rock doesn't look very heavy. Thinking to myself, Baden, you freaking girl's blouse. Get out of the way. Let me have a crack at this. I mean, Baden's like this. I'm a little skinny trap. Like, oh, get out of the way, Baden. I'll take care of it, mate. It looks heavier on TV. And uh, so, well, there was Riley. Now, Riley's now up to his uh, blue, blue, blue green belt in karate. But, you know, he's, 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 he's smaller than the olive trees. And so... And then there was then there was little Ella. Now Ella's three or four, four. Ella, oh, sorry, four. Ella's four. You know, four. Ah, four. Yeah, but you're still only four. And the fact of the matter is, we got this big hunk and rock that we need to move. It's not going to come as any surprise to you. We didn't ask Riley. Well, actually, I did. Uh, Baden didn't ask Riley and didn't ask Ella for them to get involved, having us had a crack at this thing and we couldn't even so much as budget because we knew that they weren't capable of it. And that's a mistake that we can make with Jesus if we underestimate him. If we don't know what he's capable of, we won't even ask him 
to do the heavy lifting for us. We need to get a clear understanding of what he's capable of. Mary, she knew. She knew that he was the son of God. She was the only one who knew, but she knew. And because of that, her default wasn't to simply let it go. Her default wasn't to go and take matters into her own hands and go and scrounge for some more wine in the village. Her default was purely and simply to spin around and say to Jesus, it's your time, mate. And he said to her, it's not my time, but because he's subject to the same principles that we're subject to, that you are to obey and honor your mother and father, he listened to her and did what she said. The thing is, and I just want to make sure that we all understand this, when we ask Jesus for him to perform a miracle in our lives, for him to act in and on our behalf, when we ask him, just let you know, he may first ask something of us before he acts in response. He might ask something of us that seems uncomfortable and will be uncomfortable. He might ask something of us that's inconvenient. He may even ask something of us and and often will ask something of us that makes no sense to us with our finite knowledge, but makes perfect sense to him. And it's by trusting in him that causes us to act in obedience. So here's what Jesus said. 30-year-old, unemployed guy living with his mum says to the servants, this is how it goes. Six stoneware water pots were there, used by the Jews for ritual washings, just like sort of basins, if you like. Each held 20 to 30 gallons, big basins. Jesus ordered the servants, fill the pots with water. You're tracking with me? This would have made no sense to them. A, what's water going to do? We're out of wine, mate, not water. B, you're the unemployed guy that lives with your mom. Why would we listen to you for anything? But... For whatever reason, maybe because they were scared of Mary, they filled them to the brim. Now fill your, your pitchers, your jugs, and take them to the host. Jesus said, and they did. Print that on a t-shirt, wear it every day, and memorize it. Jesus said, and they did. Insert your own name where the word they is. That's got to be us. That's got to be our response. Jesus said and Mark did. Jesus said and Neil did. We don't have to overcomplicate things. Jesus said and Charlie did. Jesus said and Gerard did. Doesn't say Jesus said and they understood. When the host tasted the water that had become wine, and he didn't know that it had just happened, but the servants, of course, knew, he called out to the bridegroom. So basically, the servants, they took it to the, the, the MC. You know, we have MCs at the weddings, the one that tells you where's the toilets and where you can go for a cigarette and all that sort of stuff. He's like, thinking it's water because it came in a different uh, container. Tastes that it's wine, and he says, everyone knows Everyone I know begins their feast with the finest wines. And after the guests were drunk, 
I mean, it's a nice translation here, but let's just call it what it is. After the guests had had a lot of wine, brings in the cheap stuff because no one will notice. The Chateau de Casque, I believe we call it in uh, Australia. But you saved the best till now. So not only did Jesus turn water into wine, Jesus turned water into the best wine. So we serve an extravagant God. We serve a God who calls himself El Shaddai, the God who is more than enough. He's not just enough. Some days I'd settle for just enough. So would you. But God says, you know what? Don't settle for enough. I'm the God who's more than enough. I'm going to turn not just water into to wine. No one would have complained if it was just cardboard, four liter uh, cask wine. No, the best wine. The best wine. And here's the ticket to ride. We ask Jesus, we do what he says. Obedience is the on-ramp to the miraculous. That miracle would not have taken place. Therefore, you and I wouldn't be reading about it. I wouldn't be preaching about it 2,000 years later if it wasn't for the link in the chain. And the link in the chain was the servants doing what Jesus asked them to do. Jesus asked and they did. Obedience is the on-ramp to the miraculous. You need a relational breakthrough. Jesus says, go and get some counseling by a good, trusted Christian counselor, especially one that won't take any of your stories. We'll reflect some truth back. Oh, that sounds a bit uncomfortable. That sounds a bit inconvenient. That's going to cost some money. Yeah. Jesus said, and you did. Change your schedule. Schedule your spouse first and then put your own interests in if there's any space left after. These are just things that Jesus might say to you if you want a relational breakthrough. They won't always make sense. They won't always be comfortable. They won't always be convenient. But our job, our role, our response, Jesus says, and I did. Maybe you want financial breakthrough. Jesus says, spend less than you earn. Well, it's a bit unfair. It means I won't be able to get the fill in the blank as soon as I want. That's right. That's exactly what it means. But do you want the miracle of Jesus intervening in your, in your financial world and get the financial breakthrough? Yes or no? Yeah. Stick to a budget. Make a budget. <laughs> and I'll insert this. Most of the time... When we, when, when we talk about this idea of Jesus said, and I did, we're not even actually talking about the audible voice of God, the voice that thunders from the mountaintop, the voice that when you're lying still in bed at night and you hear the, the, the voice of God say, make a budget, make a budget, make a budget. Oh, is it thou, Lord, that speaketh to me? M- I, I, I think I've only heard the audible voice of God twice in my life. I th- and, and it might not have even been the audible. But, 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 but if I was to go on record, I think I've only actually heard God speak to me twice. Like the voice of God. Once he was telling me off. And once he was encouraging me. 
And yet I try to align my life to do what he says. Well, well, how do you do what Jesus says? Now, in the case of the wedding, Jesus was actually there physically speaking to the servants, right? He's not physically here because he died, rose again, and went to heaven 2,000 years ago, went back to heaven. So what does this mean for us today to do what Jesus says? To, to be obedient. You know what? God is so clever. He's been speaking for thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years. He's been speaking. And he had the sense to shoulder tap a whole bunch of people to get them to write stuff down that he's been saying and doing. And he's written that down. He's, he's had those people write that stuff down so that you and I today know what he says. We don't have to wait for the audible voice of God to say to us, obey your parents. Well, God didn't say it. I didn't hear him. Yeah, he said it. It's called the Ten Commandments, mate. He said it and someone wrote it down. Well, actually, he wrote it down, but it's another story for another time. I want to overcomplicate things. And that's why... I just encourage every single one of us. We can't claim and live by the promises of God if we don't actually even know what they are. We can't live and walk according to the ways of God if we don't even know his ways. No matter if you want to travel south to Bunbury, if you get on the Mitchell Freeway and start heading north, you're not going to get there. You need to know the way. We need to know the way. God has chosen to shoulder tap a whole host of very, very, very cool people who have written what he says down. And we can draw on that today. We don't have to wait for this voice, so to speak. God's voice speaks all the time. His word is alive and speaking to us Every single day. There's two Greek words, and I don't want to get a little bit too Greeked out here, but there's two Greek words. The Greek word rhema, the Greek word logos. The Greek word rhema means the, the, the spoken word of God. That's this audible voice. You know, you might be in worship, like Louis saying, might be in worship and, and feel God saying, hey, we need to pray for unchurched people, people that aren't following Jesus. That's like a rhema word of God, okay? Then there's the Logos word of God. The Logos word of God is God revealing himself, bringing truth out from his written word. That's going to be the MO for most of us most of the time. So my strongest recommendation, if you are not regularly reading your Bible, this isn't about guilt. It's not about, you know, like the the king of uh, Madagascar might say, it's not a competition. It's about if we, we can't claim and live by the promises of God if we don't first learn the promises of God. We can't claim and live the ways of God and walk in his ways if we don't even know what his ways are. And so we don't, you know, stand up every Sunday. Okay, who read your Bible this week? How many times did you read it? Who read it for the longest? It's not a competition. But we, why wouldn't we is my question. Why wouldn't we? If we want, if we seriously want to know his ways, if we seriously want him to weigh in. And then there's this great, 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 great outcome 
Beyond having more wine for the wedding, great, great outcome that John recorded. The story didn't end there. That was pretty cool up to then. But there was a greater outcome. There was a greater purpose of Jesus actually performing his first miracle. This is what John records. The very next thing. This act in Cana of Galilee was the first sign Jesus gave and the first glimpse of his glory and his disciples believed in him. When we start to exhibit the supernatural favor of God working in and through our lives, when we start to see and exhibit and demonstrate that there is something in us that is supernatural, that is above and beyond what we could do in our own. All of our friends know our limitations. All of our friends know that we're knuckleheads at heart. So when when great stuff happens in our lives, when miracles start to happen in our lives, when we see breakthrough in our marriages, breakthrough in our finances, breakthrough in our health, in our businesses, in our careers, the favor of God, God's miraculous power working in us and through us, when that happens, friends and family will know that there is a God who is real. They will, it will be undeniable for them. It will be undeniable. God performs miracles in us. We think it's to give us a leg up. It's ultimately to bring himself glory. It's ultimately to demonstrate, not just to us, but to everyone, just how magnificent, how powerful he is. Let me ask you this morning. We prayed for you this morning if you've never made Jesus your Lord, if you've never decided to follow him. We prayed for you this morning, right here this morning. Louis got up and prayed for you, that you would make a decision, that you would get to a place in your life where you would say, Jesus, I want to follow you. If you've never made that decision, we're going to give you that opportunity right now. We haven't just prayed for you and send you out hoping you make that decision one day and don't get hit by a bus in the meantime. We want to give you that opportunity right here, right now. If you've never made the decision to follow Jesus, to make him your Lord, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Just literally, just put your hand up. And when you put your hand up, I'll see it and I'll ask you to put it down. But you're just putting your hand up saying, Jesus, yeah, that's me. That's my decision this morning. I want to make you my Lord. So right now, as I look across our auditorium, if you've never made that decision to make Jesus your Lord, to follow him, to trust him, just slip your hand up and say, yeah, that's my, that's my decision this morning. That, I'm saying yes to that decision this morning. Say, yes, Jesus, I'll follow you. When I see your hand, I'll ask you to put it down, and then we're going to pray. I just don't want to miss anybody, so real quickly, if you've never made that decision, just put your hand up right now, and you can put it down. Okay. Well, let's keep praying that prayer that Louis prayed. Let's keep praying that church. Let's keep being that. Let's keep making ourselves available to God and to the people that we're engaging with and investing in to see them take this step of faith. Hey, two things real quickly before we break out the coffee. Uh, next Sunday is incredibly exciting morning to be here, part of our live experience for two reasons. Every Sunday is exciting from my point of view, but two special reasons. The first is this. 
next Sunday, and we've been talking about this for the last few weeks. If you're a guest here this morning, let me just quickly catch you up. You'll notice some pictures uh, on the side uh, of our auditorium here. These are pictures on this side of some kids, some babies and their mums that we've actually uh, financially invested in to rescue them from, from potentially dying before the age of five. Uh, in this case, they're in a village in the Philippines, and we partner with Compassion. Uh, to run a child survival program in that particular village. Over here is uh, three households in Indonesia uh, who, who are Opportunity International, an organization who does microfinancing, microloans to small business owners to really uh, give them a leg up, help them become financially free and independent and start to prosper. Uh, we've partnered with them under the umbrella of what we call Elevate Global. These are things that we're doing beyond our four walls and in these cases, beyond our Australian uh, shores. Uh, If you want information, it's going to be on your chair or the chair next to you. If you haven't got that already, grab that, read that. In there, you'll find a little uh, A5 slip, which is our commitment. So next Sunday... This is a reminder to those of you that have been tracking over this month and news if you're here for the first time as a guest today. Next Sunday, we're going to be taking a couple of minutes during our live experience to actually commit as households and as individuals to what we're going to give for the ensuing 12 months, for the financial year 2013-2014 into Elevate Global. The idea is that we're going to give something on the day. Okay, We're going to have some sort of vessel not filled with water or wine, empty vessel. We're going to fill it uh, with financial commitments for the next 12 months and actually a kickstart on that day. We want to actually be able to send some money to Compassion and send some money to Opportunity International. The information's there. You can go on their websites and find out even more if you care to. But come prepared and ready to do that. Uh, Louis and I won't physically be giving money on the day, into that urn because we'll give electronically and you guys might want to do that as well. But on the day, we'll certainly be putting in our 12-month commitment as well as having given uh, in the kickstart. So be a part of that. We've actually been praying and I've been fasting for a miracle in that, that Elevate Church, we're extravagantly generous and uh, that we'll be known for our generosity. We'll be known for our commitment to, to doing things beyond just our four walls. So that's next Sunday, our kickstart and commitment for Elevate Global. And the other thing I'm excited about is one of our friends, uh, a guy named Daniele Recca, is uh, going to be speaking here at Elevate. Um, he's a friend of ours. He leads a church in Sicily. And uh, he's coming to Australia, and he's going to come and hang out with us for a few days. Um, And he's going to be our first ever international guest speaker at Elevate Church. Uh, Just want to make sure you, you, you will want to make sure you're here because he's from Sicily. And if you're not here, he will find you and you may wake up with a horse's head in your bed. Just saying. Anyway, but look, uh, his is a great story. Um... Uh, we'll talk about it more next week, but for you to for you to launch, he launched his church from scratch. For you to launch um, and lead a, a Christian church, a, what they call a, a Protestant church in Italy, is very very similar because of the Catholic stronghold. is very very similar to launching and leading a Christian church in a Muslim country. Okay, I've been to Italy and preached in many churches right throughout Italy. I can tell you, it is it is a grind. 
It is a sacrifice. It is tough. And uh, he's one of the guys that's just making it happen and, and, and hitting some pretty phenomenal home runs. So he's going to be here. If you've never heard anyone preach in Italian, it is la lingua di amore, the language of love. So you'll be hearing someone preach God's word in Italian, and you'll hear my best attempt at uh, being his interrupter. Uh, that's the interpreter. Better get that right for next week. The Italian word is traduttore. At least I can say it. I might be sunk after the just, you know, whimsical good morning, buongiorno, come stai, and then, oh my gosh, you know. But you get to la- listen to him and laugh at me. So, there you go. Intriguing, hey? All right. Neil, I know that you don't know. Well, okay. Officially, I know that you're not obliged to know, but would you have any indication of what the coffee is today? Rwanda, Uganda. Ooh, a trans-country blend. Wonderful. All right. Well, enjoy the Rwandan, Ugandan coffee. Say hi to someone you don't know. Have a miraculous week. Be here next Sunday.